Well, hi, this is Gabe Hartfield, and I want to thank you for joining us here on the podcast. I get the privilege to work with a community of post-college young adults, and so that's why we call this podcast The Post. And every week, we get to send out a message into the world that provides practical steps to a mature faith, inspires hope, and helps make the invisible God visible. So here's what we talked about this week at The Post. Right. Uh, well, welcome. Uh, good to be with you all today. Um, my name is Gabe Hartfield. And I'm excited you're here at The Post. Um, it's a, a group for adults, mid-20s to mid-30s, and pursuing how can we grow in our faith and maturity? How can we represent Christ to this world well? And how can we do community well? Not the way the world does but the way God tells us to. And so just excited to be with you all tonight. We've been studying the book of Proverbs and uh, wisdom literature um, from Solomon, but we're shifting tonight, and we're actually going to be talking about another book associated with him uh, that's called Song of Songs, also known as Song of Solomon. Now, this is an interesting book, um, if you are familiar with it. Um, Actually, just show of hands, who's actually read this book before? Okay, who who is not? (laughs) Okay, a few people. All right, um, so um, this book, even if you've read it, most of the time people haven't heard messages on it, haven't really studied it a lot. And so I'm eager to step into it with you all. Um, I think a couple caveats that I'll just give at the start. One is this, we're not gonna be going through the entire book uh, chapter by chapter. I'm looking at this more as we're opening with this and actually gonna use this as kind of launching into a series more on relationships and talking about uh, that aspect and dynamic of life. And with that though, each of the speakers will bring different parts of this book in. And so next week we're having um, a lady named Lori Creed come and share. Um, She's written a book called Impossible Marriage. Um, and talks about theology of uh, sex, sexuality, and marriage. And then after that, we're going to have someone uh, from the church who works with marriage ministry talk about it. And then we're going to try and jump into some other uh, subjects, Um, singleness, uh, dating, what do those things uh, look like. And uh, I'm very excited about jumping into this. Um, This book is interesting because it's love poetry, (laughs) is what it is. And... um, I think that when I first read it, I had a really hard time like emotionally connecting with it. Um, I think for me especially, I didn't get uh, married till this year, so um, when I was 35. And for me, I felt like um, it was actually, like when I was single, hard to really connect with this book because I didn't understand what it was about. And uh, also, I think the other thing about it is, um, just I'll, I'll just say this. One of the things when I first came to work at Crossroads was there was a lot of people telling me different ideas of what I should do and shouldn't do, and a lot of people wanted me to make this group all about relationships and um, call it like a singles group. And I flat out said no, um, because for me, I didn't like the idea. I was kind of bothered by like first calling it a singles group actually sounded like a married person named it and uh, secondly the other thing was I felt like it reduced people to their marital status and that was just not what I wanted um, to be part of our group Um, so for the last two years I didn't talk at all about relationships Um, not like a single time 
Uh, in fact, the first uh, book that we went through was Jeremiah, who is a person who is commanded by God to be single, um, which is very interesting. You don't see that all the time in the scriptures. However, a lot of times in the past, uh, like this summer and also um, throughout the fall, I've had a lot of people talk to me about uh, challenges in relationships or good things in relationships and looking for what does God say about this. And I've realized that this is a subject that's important for all of us. This book too, Song of Songs, I found that there was a guy named Charles Spurgeon, who if you've studied church history, is a famous theologian, and he once preached 58 sermons on this. If you do one a week, that's more than a whole year um, on this book. And I was like, I, I don't think I've heard one sermon, maybe one sermon on this. And so I was like trying to look through it and study it myself. Um, but with that, I think one of the things I'm wondering is, is it possible that this book that is about love poetry and about a relationship and um, has some very interesting images in it, um, is it possible that at some level it has some profound things to say about the human experience and our relationships with each other and with God? And so I want to challenge us to be open to what God could say in this book. And I recognize because of um, everybody being in a broad range of different spots, um, based on your experience with dating, with singleness, um, with different things like that, that you could have a lot of different responses to this. You could actually love this book and find it very interesting, or you could be in the other camp and be like, I just can't relate, I don't like this. It's also, um, it hits on relationships, which is a sensitive subject for me. And so I recognize that there's a broad range of where we're at. But whether we're dating, engaged, um, married, single and want to date or single and don't want to get married, wherever we're at in this, I believe this book has powerful things to say to us, and I want to encourage us to step into it. So I'm going to have us read from not the start of the book, but I'm going to go to a couple chapters, and there's a particular reason why I'm doing that, and I'll explain that to you in a little bit, but I just want you for now just to trust me, and we're going to jump into chapters four and five. Um, so chapters four and five, and I'm gonna have two people come up and read because in this book, you have two people. You have a male voice and you also have a female voice. And so I want us to um, hear it read in both voices. Um, and so I'm gonna have uh, Hanok and Kelly come up and uh, read it together. I didn't pick them for any particular reason. Um, but uh, anyways, if you guys would like to read it. Yeah, if they're on. Oh, yeah, good call. Let's stand. Song of Songs, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. You are beautiful, my darling, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves. Like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and, fresh, and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. Your lips are like your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Before the dawn breezes blow, and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh, 
and to the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling, beautiful in every way. And we're going to read from the Song of Songs, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. I have entered my garden, my treasure, my bride. I gather myrrh with my spices and eat honeycomb with the honey, with my honey. I drank wine with my milk. O lover and beloved, eat and drink. Yes, drink deeply of your love. I slept when my heart was awake, when I heard my lover knocking and calling. Open to me, my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. But I responded, I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I have washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? All right. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> it is interesting to say that after this passage, but, um, so when we think about this, I think that, like, he starts in chapter four um, with giving these, like, exclamations and almost like a song, and some people have likened it to Adam when he first sees Eve, and he uh, celebrates her and sings, and a lot of these images are just very interesting. So the first one here, um, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Now, when it says veil, one of the interesting things about this is um, the veil is implying that this is actually at their wedding. And so a lot of scholars think that this is uh, basically his wedding vows that he's saying to her, that he's describing her beauty at, their, um, at the wedding ceremony. Now, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've officiated some. And then at mine this summer, um, when I was going through the vows, it's so funny because sometimes I'll like plan a joke or something like that. And this time, I didn't plan it. I, I was going through, and the um, pastor, he was having me repeat the vows. And one part, it says, I commit to being a uh, loving and caring husband and father. And I repeated it and said, I commit to being a loving and caring father. <laughs> and there's an awkward pause, and Montana just looks at me and goes, and husband? <laughs> like, I mean, like, that's the whole point of this, right? You know, and, and so um, and I was like, oh, yes, and husband. And so the thing about it is when you're in that spot, you're saying and you're proclaiming your love and commitment for another person. And you, you try to rehearse, but sometimes you slip up, you say things like that. But in this, he's going through and he says you're, how beautiful you are. And he says your hair is like a flock of goats descending, or some verses, uh, versions say leaping from the hills of Gilead. Some people think that um, because it's saying leaping, it's implying curly hair or like curls to the hair. Um, the flock of goats would be a darker color. And then it says your teeth are like a flock of sheep. I mean, that is a great opener. You know, like, you're going to really win someone over with that one. Um, they're like a flock of sheep, just shorn. You know, like, the, they're just perfect. And it says, uh, coming up from the washing, each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Other versions say, not one is missing. And so the indication there would be that even Solomon wanted a dentist, you know, um, needed people. And so 
for him, it's recognizing that the teeth are there, the hair is there, and then it goes to um, the, uh, let's see, wrong, there we go. Um, uh, verse 3, it says, Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon, your mouth is lovely, your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate, your neck is like the Tower of David built with the courses of stone on it hang thousands of shields. This, people think, is indicating like a necklace. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. People have said that uh, deer are associated with fertility, so some people think that might be why he chose that. Um, that browse among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. I will go to the mountain of myrrh in the hill of incense. Okay, he's just going on about this. And then he says, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Now, he's celebrating a lot about this physical uh, description of her. And as you're reading this, you're like, why is he choosing so much of this imagery? And there's actually um, someone took and thought they would make an artistic representation of if all of this was literal. Um, what it would look like. So here's a picture of literally the descriptions. Um, so her hair is like a flock of goats. That's like a tower there. We see the fawns, and then there's the beautiful teeth. Um, they're not too, you know, bad, but... Um, and then lots of different things there. So we have this description, and I think when I was reading this, I don't know about you, but I think the question that was in my head is, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? Like, why is this here? Um, what does it have to do with it? Like, wh why? I'm reading all these things about spirituality and God's love for us and all these deep theological things, and all of a sudden we're getting into all this physical beauty and in the next chapter she celebrates the man at one part and talks all about him and um, I think compares him to like a horse or something like that and all these different descriptions and you're like what is that why is this in the bible now there's a lot of different translation or not translations interpretations of why song of songs is there and what to do with it all Jewish rabbis, they thought that this was a metaphor for God's love for his people Israel. And when it talks about the kisses of love, some people associate that actually with scripture because there's other verses that imply it could be a connection point. And so they think it's about God's law and um, his love for his people. Christians um, through the centuries have celebrated it as we are the bride of Christ, some stuff we hear in the New Testament, um, and Jesus is the groom, and so it's his love and relationship for us. A third way of looking at the book is actually that it is a celebration of the gift of physical love between two people that are married in a covenant love before God. I think it's interesting to look at it from both that lens and also the Christian lens that we have. I think that if you look at it as it is talking about physical love and also just um, relationships and how um, relationships matter, but it's also pointing to uh, connections between us and God, I think you can make the case for both of those. When I was... Um, younger growing up, I would hear this phrase some pastors would say. They would say, you don't have a spirit, 
you are a spirit, you have a body. I thought there was some truth to that, but when I'd walk away from it, a lot of times that would leave me thinking that the physical body doesn't really matter. It's just a shell and that I'm just like an avatar, this is the matrix and this shell is just caring about my spirit or something mystical like that. And the more I studied Christianity, I realized that the physical body actually matters. That it wasn't enough for Jesus to just die spiritually, but Jesus had to come and die physically. And in Romans, it says, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And in another place, Paul writes and says, you were bought with a price, therefore, honor God with your body. All this to say that maybe we've reduced the physical body and what we do with it to something less than and thought that we can just do whatever we want with it. But the thing is, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what you do with it matters to God. How you um, interact with other people with your body matters to God. And I think it's a powerful thing to think about this passage in light of that. One other interesting thing about this chapter is this. Um, I, as I studied Song of Songs, I was trying to figure out, like, what are some of the key points to it? And at the end of this chapter, verse 12, he says, You are a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring. Um, this is, yeah, verse 12, a spring enclosed a seal. And then again, uh, just a few verses down, he uses this same garden theme. Um, I think it's in verse 15. You are a garden fountain, a well of uh, flowing water streaming down from Lebanon. And then um, the woman replies and says, let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruit. You can interpret that how you want. Um, but I think one of the things with this is if you look at the whole book, some people have studied what's called like chiastic structures where it starts and ends in a certain way and they call that like framing. And so if you look at this next picture, I've got a picture there of the, so if you can see this, I tried to get it as best I could, um, but at the top, um, you might not be able to see this in the back, but there's an invitation at the start of the book, take me away, and at the end of the book, come away. Starts with talking about friends, ends with friends. There's vineyards, vineyards, and usually when you see that structure in a book, usually what's right at the center is what's most important or what the author is trying to draw your attention to. And right at the center is this image about the garden. So you see at the end of chapter 4, it talks about into his garden. Verse 5 starts with into my garden. And I just thought it was so interesting that we've been studying Genesis and there's a lot of like Eden imagery in this. There's a lot of fruit images and different things like that. And I think it's pointing to it and saying this relationship between a husband and wife, while in Proverbs there's a lot of warnings against sexual immorality, this is actually saying that in the context of marriage, protected by mar uh, the marriage covenant, that this relationship between husband and wife can be awesome, that it can be a beautiful thing, and it can be like a garden, celebrating that brings life, and it can be a great thing. And I think so often in the church, because we focus so much on the warnings against these things, that we've forgotten that God has created it and said this is a good thing.
And it's something to be celebrated and protected because it is sacred before God. Now, as we move forward, we get to chapter 5. Now, in chapter 5, there's a little bit of interesting stuff that happens in the garden, okay? So it starts with him saying, you know, um, I've come into my garden, my sister, my bride, I've gathered um, my myrrh and my spice, I've eaten my honeycomb, and then the friends say, uh, like, just encourage them, take your fill of love, and then you get to verse 2, and there's this interesting thing that happens, and I remember reading this and being like, I've never heard this story before, but the woman says, I was sleeping, but my heart was awake. Now, Some people have said, is that like a dream, or was she just about to go to sleep? Kind of unclear. But she says, listen, my beloved is knocking. And her husband, so we know that this has been a little while after um, they've been married. Um, Her husband is come home late from work, is what we assume. And he says, open to me, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. Um, my head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of night. Um, and so he basically has come home, and the inference is that he wants to enter his garden, so to speak. Um, and so he decides he's come home, and he, you know, you got to feel for the guy. He's probably worked a long day, and he's just like, I just got to get home, and I want to relax and uh, you know, connect with my wife. And so he gets home and he knocks on the door. Now, back in this day, it's implied, we don't know for sure if this is Solomon. There's been some uh, like different interpretations of who this is. Some people think it's Solomon. Some people at the start, it says there's a shepherd. And so they think, is this another person that she married or is this like a better version of Solomon? Kind of unclear, but he's come home and he's a royal person. And when he's coming back to his royal courts, sometimes back in those days, the men and the women would actually sleep in different courts, um, is what we understand. And so um, he comes home and he is knocking on her door. Um, And he is wanting to enter his garden. And so when he's knocking, she says, basically, I've taken my robe off, must, I put it on again, I've washed my feet, like she's already got ready for bed, and it's kind of like she's just like, I'm not going to inconvenience myself, I'm already ready for bed, and I'm not getting up again. Now, I, I'm not trying to stereotype, but I wonder if this might be a common experience. I think that, um, so she's like ready for bed, not wanting to get up, but then he keeps knocking. And it says that the more that he knocked, I think some version says that uh, there was like a thrill in her heart. And my heart, is that what it said? My heart uh, was excited within me. Is that what it says? Go to the next one there. Oh yeah. My heart began to pound for him is what some versions say. And then I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh. So she is like ready to actually, she's kind of like this, you know, well, actually, maybe it's not that late, you know, like I don't have to be to work that early, you know, I can, you know, get up a little bit later or something like that. And so she decides to like change her mind, so to speak. And she gets up, she goes to open the door, and as soon as she opens the door, guess what happens? He's gone. And he's left. 
because he feels, we're not sure if he feels uh, disrespected or rejected, we're not sure, but he leaves. And so she goes searching for him in the night and trying to find him. Um, I called to him, but he did not answer. I looked for him, but I did not find him. Now she goes looking for him. Now here's what I find interesting about this passage and why I think it can actually have something for us this modern day. He came home and he had a very clear expectation, like what he was wanting. She was not expecting it. And because she was not expecting it, she denied it at first. And then he kept knocking. And all of a sudden, something changed. And she it was like, well, maybe. You know, um, and I think what's interesting about it is this. By the time she had expectations raised where she was like, okay, I can do this, he was no longer interested. And what I find interesting about the whole human experience is so much of relationships is about expectations. And there are times where you may have expectations for yourself, for others, for life. And uh, like in this context, it's specifically talking about sex, but he's saying that this is about relationships in general, that we all have expectations. And when those expectations are not met, there's dissonance, right? So sometimes you could have um, expectations uh, for like friends, for family, for other things like that. And I think it's very good to be able to be aware of when those expectations are acting up and when they're active. Um, he, he comes home and that's very much what he's uh, expecting. And she was not expecting it. The, I can like relate to this in some ways. Um, one of the things that uh, Montana and I talked about when we were dating was that there was a time where um, a friend of ours, uh, he invited us to go with him and his wife to go dancing and uh, go out to dinner. And it was kind of a last minute thing. And I remember calling and asking um, if she was interested in that. And she had already kind of had her plans for the night and routines. And so she wasn't sure if she wanted to go. So I was like, well, okay, maybe we're not gonna go. So I called them and say, we're not gonna go. And all of a sudden, I've just kind of lost interest in it. And then about 15 minutes later, I get a call. Can you guess from who? <laughs> and Montana says, actually, I think I'd be up for that. And um, at this point, I've already been like, all right, I'm doing something else. And so it's just sometimes what can happen in life is you can have mixed, missed expectations or mixed expectations. There's some times where you might have something with a friendship or a relationship and miss the expectations. Um, it could be something like um, a job where you actually are expecting, if I do something, I will get this promotion. One thing that's very dangerous that can happen with expectations is sometimes they can turn into covert contracts. Now, covert contract is where you think, if I do this, I will get this. But you don't communicate it to the other person and there is no clear expectation. Classic example is you'll hear like a guy saying, saying to himself, if I clean the dishes, then that means sex or something like that. The thing about it is, Yes, it can happen in relationships, but it can happen in so many areas of life. I know some, uh, somebody who was telling me a story that they had some family members 
one of them wanted to hang out with the other one more. And so they wanted quality time from the other one, but the other one was very busy. So they gave gifts to this person to try and get time from it, like almost like a transactional thing. But the person was not giving the time that they wanted. And this started to fester and cause bitterness and resentment to grow until it actually resulted in like um, a fist fight and they hadn't talked in months since. It like severed the relationship. And I think that so many times we have like certain times where there's behaviors or things that are like expectations not met and we keep saying, hey, you didn't uh, hit this goal, um, what you did wasn't enough, your performance was not enough, and eventually behavioral unmet expectations move into identity things. And eventually what someone hears as, hey, you didn't do good enough, you didn't do this well enough, becomes you are not enough. And after years of somebody being beat up by hearing the words, like hearing this lie that you are not enough, that is often how marriages unravel and divorce happens and how um, friendships are severed and families are broken. Because when the expectations continue to be, hey, you failed at this, you're not enough, when it gets to that point of not being able to be enough, that is very hard on people. And not just hard, but it can be devastating. I think that one of the things is some of us, it's not that others have put expectations on us, it's culture has put expectations on us. And maybe someone's not trying to say this, but every time you show up to like a family get together and they're asking about something with your job or asking um, like if you're dating somebody or something, all of a sudden it just triggers. You're not enough. Or you start feeling like I'm not marryable. For some people, they're not, they don't look good enough or they're not strong enough or they can't be a good provider. And all of a sudden you start just having the lies of the enemy just fester in you over and over again. Sometimes what's really bad is sometimes when we don't communicate our expectations, we set people up for failure and set them up for resentment. Um, gosh, Jaren, you told me uh, what, what resentments are called. What was it, premeditated? Yeah, that a lot of times these things can become premeditated resentments where I've set somebody up to not hit something so that I can justify my resentment against them. I think that's just so pathological when it happens. So what do you do when you have unmet expectations? What do you do? How do you handle those? I think one of the big things is actually just communicating them like saying what you're like looking for or your expectations in life, saying those and voicing those to other people. I, I know that sounds, it's not really profound, but I think that it's something that often we don't do. And so I think just verbalizing, it says in the Bible to speak the truth in love. And if you're not voicing those to people, you're actually doing them a disservice and setting them up for failure. If you love somebody, you owe them the truth. Another thing I, I think that when we think about how to deal with expectations, I think that sometimes it's actually like releasing things. 
Sometimes it's evaluating things. But also, you have to realize there's sometimes standards and boundaries that you have to put in place in life, and those are healthy. I'm talking more about these unrealistic expectations um, that go on people and try and put them in like a straitjacket and make them feel like they have to be a certain person. Um, one of the things that when we were in premarital counseling that someone told us is one of the things in marriage is it's this delicate balance of trying to communicate desires without turning them into demands. When you turn them into demands and hold them over people, that's where it's a problem. There is a pastor named Eugene Peterson, and I love reading his stuff. Um, he wrote the message version of the Bible and has wrote several other books. And he said that he had all these expectations and hopes for, um, like, uh, for what his church would be. And he realized that what God was doing in them was different than his expectations and hopes. And he said that in that moment, he realized that if his expectations were not in line with what God was leading and already doing with this church and these people he had brought into his life, then his expectations had actually become the enemy of what God was doing in them. Think about your expectations because here's the thing is this. Some of the things that we expect or the standards we have are really good things. Um, that you should hold to, like um, having somebody that is also on the same faith path as you. I think is a really good thing, like in scripture, it even talks about how that is what got Solomon off course. Solomon, um, who was connected to this book, apparently uh, married 700 wives, and they were almost all worshiping other gods and led his heart astray. And so it talks about having some of these standards of like, yeah, I'm going to marry somebody who is on the same faith path as me. Um, and so there are good things, but sometimes there can be unrealistic ones or things that are just to hold over someone's head. And I think a good way of evaluating whether this is a healthy like standard or if it's an unrealistic expectation is just asking why you have it. Um, like actually investigating why do you have that standard or that expectation? And if someone's placing it on you, also asking why do you think they have that expectation? What is it they're looking for in that? She ends up um, going out and looking for him. And her friends say, how is your beloved better than any others? most beautiful of women. How is your beloved better than others that you so charge us? And she replies in verse 10 and says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. And she talks about just how great this guy is. And, um, and it's kind of interesting because like, I don't know if you've ever like really cared about somebody or really cared about something, but when somebody treats that thing lightly, and all of a sudden it triggers something in you, it, it can set you off. And it sets this uh, wife off for the next like 16, uh, six verses. She just goes on and on about how great this guy is because they were like, what's so special about him? Like, why is he so great? I think actually like when I think about when people say like, why is this person so great or something like that? Or is that so great? This is random, but I actually think of um, this time, okay, uh, when I went to go see the first, uh, it was episode three of Star Wars, okay? Now, I am actually a huge Star Wars fan, if you don't know this, and I got there early, I dressed up, I was all set to go in, 
And, um, and as I was there, I noticed that somebody else got in line before me, okay? Now, I um, was gonna be waiting 11 hours in line to see this movie. And this person was somebody I knew from school at the time, I was in high school at the time, and I knew they did not care about the movie as much as I did. And so I was talking with them, and at one point I just asked, hey, it was kind of my dream <laughs> to be first into this movie. This sounds kind of terrible to say or admit, but I was like, I was determined that I was gonna be first into this movie. And I was like, would you be okay if like I went in in this and like I told my brothers we were all gonna go in together? This is an odd request. I don't know why I'm telling you guys this, but, um, and I, I wanted to go in and be first. And he said to me, no, Gabe, it's just a movie. Now, when I heard him say it's just a movie and treat it lightly, I mean, that just set a fire in me because I was like, you think this is just a Okay, no, um, and proceeded to go to the dark side. No, um, and the thing about it is this. In this passage, these other people treated her husband lightly, and that just set a fire in her. When you love somebody and someone treats them lightly, it sets a fire in you. If they say something demeaning about that person, it sets a fire in you. And when people do that about God, does it set a fire in you? Do you have the same passion and love for God that when somebody treats him lightly, that it sets a fire in you? When people attack at God, does it set a fire in you? Because the truth is, when God came to earth and saw what was happening to us and the things that were happening um, on our souls, that we were being condemned from our own sins, that set a fire in him. And he wasn't willing to just allow us to be treated lightly. He was like this, um, in some ways, he was like the woman who went out searching in the darkness to try and find her love. I think that when we look at this passage, I think a lot of times it's interesting to try and navigate what is it about and different things. In the human experience, we're all going to have expectations that are not met. And what do you do with those expectations that are not met? And what do you do when someone treats lightly the one you love? I have some questions we're going to look at here, um, so if you can bring those up on the screen. Um, but how do you generally respond when an expectation is not met? Like if you think about it in your life, how do you respond when an expectation is not met? What's the difference between boundaries, or I mentioned standards, and expectations? How do you know if your expectations are realistic or unrealistic? And then this, if a boundary has changed or um, gets crossed or later on in the relationship, you have to like make some changes to it. How do you communicate that? How do you communicate uh, these in general? Like how do you communicate expectations or boundaries in general? So I'm gonna just let you go into your groups to chat about this and then we'll come back in just a little bit. Hi, this is Gabe Hartfield, and I want to thank you for joining us here on the podcast. 
I get the privilege to work with a community of post-college young adults. And so that's why we call this podcast The Post. And every week, we get to send out a message into the world that provides practical steps to a mature faith, inspires hope, and helps make the invisible God visible. So here's what we talked about this week at The Post. The Post.